Welcome to the ACO Show. Today, you'll hear Josh Israel's interview with Ido Banik, the president and CEO of the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization. You'll learn about what is the hospice Medicare benefit, the difference between hospice and palliative care, and how accountable care organizations can better coordinate with these services. Produced by Hannah Posner and Aaron Wing. Sound engineering by Pete Lesko. We are here with Ido Banik, who is the president and CEO of the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization, otherwise known as the NHPCO. Welcome. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. What can you tell us about your organization? What should we know about it? Yeah, so NHPCO has actually been around since the late 70s, 1978, and it was instrumental in getting Medicare to uh, have a a hospice benefit. It's the largest and the oldest uh, organization serving hospice and palliative care providers, over a thousand providers nationwide. And it's really the community where if you're big or you're small or you're nonprofit or you're for-profit or you do palliative care or hospice, you all come together and uh, we're the community. When you say a thousand providers, is that a thousand hospice organizations or a thousand individual providers? A thousand hospice organizations. Okay. I think of the NHPCO as primarily serving to advocate for the for-profits. Is that a misunderstanding? It is. Uh, We actually, two-thirds of our members are nonprofits. Uh, so it's gotten to be in home care and nursing homes that um, a, there is a nonprofit organization, there's a for-profit organization. In uh, hospice now and hopefully for a long time, we're all together. Uh, we're all in it together, and we're really uh, in it for people. And your background is a, an attorney. Yeah, so I, I went to law school uh, n- never really thinking I was going to go into healthcare. I was an attorney. Uh, ended up graduating and working for a federal judge who was working on a, a healthcare case, Medicaid case, and uh, got sucked in. And that was almost uh, almost 20 years ago now. And what does your work there entail? What does it mean to be the CEO of that organization? It entails everything from negotiating the price of an egg uh, at a meeting to, uh, to talking about policy and having discussions with, with the Hill. So it's advocacy, it's lobbying when we need to, it's education, it's policy work, it's regulatory work, quality, making sure that everyone who's providing care does it at a certain level and obviously as, as, uh, as good as they could provide that care. Um, and then we, we serve to really educate not only providers of that care and the people who work for them, but also the community as well. Let's start with some of the basics. Uh, what is hospice? I think there's a, still a common misunderstanding that hospice is a place that you go when you are near the end of life. Yeah, and that's a common misconception. Hospice is not a place. So when I first told my friends back home that I was getting this uh, job, their first reaction was hospice. That's like a place that you go to to die. No, most people who die on hospice care actually die in their, in their own home. Uh, so, so most people who die, die in their own home. And the, the fact is that it's a, uh, a benefit that's available for people who have a prognosis of less than six months to live. So another uh, 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 common misconception is that it's only available for people who are imminently dying. It's actually for people who have a prognosis of less than six months to live. They can sometimes live longer uh, because of the uncertainty of dementia, things like that. Uh, and uh, third, you actually have to give up curative care in order to get hospice care, palliative care. Uh, fourth, it's interdisciplinary. So it's not just a doctor, it's not just a nurse, it's actually an entire team, medical and non-medical. Um, so it's in the home, it's an entire team, and it's person-centered. And the rest of the healthcare system says, you know, we're person-centered. Hospice actually provides uh, that care based on an assessment for the individual, 
not bound by what's medically necessary, because remember, we're not talking about purely medical needs. And so hospice has a little more flexibility than the rest of the healthcare system. It's really unfortunate you have to wait till the very end of life sometimes to get it. Uh, but what we're trying to do is getting people to accept hospice a little earlier than they would otherwise. Given that about 50% of all patients with Medicare do enroll in hospice at some point at the end of their lives, yeah. it's still surprising to me that there is such a misconception around what hospice is, that I know there are there are some physical hospices, but I don't know why that confuses everybody. I think it's partly because, you know, people only go through hospice once. Um, and uh, so once they get it, um, you know, they're, they're their families get it, uh, they've obviously moved on. Uh, that's, that's part of it. The other part of it is that the median length of stay for hospice, this sounds wonky, but it's important, is three weeks. So most people do only get hospice for only a couple weeks and or a couple days at the very, very end of their prognosis. And, you know, I don't blame most people. You fight, you fight, you fight. You really try to get whatever you can get. Um, and then hospice is a last resort. It's We'll get to this later, but it's one of the reasons why we want to make some changes uh, in the hospice benefit. Uh, that brings me to the other basic piece I wanted us to cover, which is the difference between hospice and palliative care. Right. So hospice is actually a... Uh, covered Medicare benefit. It started out as a demonstration in 1978. It was, uh, uh, through legislation, made a permanent part of the, of the program in 1983. And since then, it's been this benefit that I just described. Palliative care is, a, is, is actually a broader term. Uh, the best example of palliative care that exists is hospice. But palliative care is broader. It's something that you can theoretically get in the hospital or in the community, and you don't have to be imminently dying in order to get it. Here's the catch. The catch is there is no Medicare benefit called palliative care. And so although we all talk about palliative care as something that we obviously want people to get uh, prior to when they're seriously ill, Medicare fee-for-service doesn't have such a payment stream. Uh, you can sometimes get something called palliative care in an ACO. You can sometimes go get palliative care in a Medicare Advantage plan, but there's a lot of variety and variation. So it's not a Medicare benefit. It's something we want to be a Medicare benefit. Um, there's also a distinction between palliative care, which tends to be more interdisciplinary, usually in the community, and palliative medicine, which is a medical specialty, which is something that you get in the hospital usually. You spoke about uh, trying to get the hospice benefit available earlier to patients. What do you picture that looking like? Yeah, so if, if I were king um, and I would wave my magic wand, I'd say, why do you have to have less than six months to live in order to get uh, uh, interdisciplinary person-centered care? Uh, what, what if it were longer, especially for folks with dementia? Evidence shows that folks, when folks choose hospice care, the Medicare system saves money. Why? Because you're not going to the hospital, you're not going in and out of the nursing home, there's a management and coordination of your care. And so the idea is, why don't we let people get access to that earlier? And the trigger, the determiner of whether you get care or not, shouldn't be how many months you have to live, but what's your need based on an assessment. Uh, that's number one. And number two, uh, the concurrent portion. So right now it's an either or. It's a really hard decision for a lot of folks to make. Do I keep fighting or do I get interdisciplinary person-centered care? Why can't you get them both at the same time? And right now there's a demonstration called the Care Choices Demo that's testing out if we give people access to curative and palliative care at the same time, does the system save money? Does it increase uh, access? Does it increase uh, quality? In which case we will argue that it, it should be the standard. Medicare sometimes reminds me of something in the, in the jungle where uh, you know, if you see a tree or you 
Um, you know, you see a fruit, something specializes in eating that. Yeah. And the system is so awash in money that even for a fantastic benefit like Medicare, there spring up somebody that tries to take advantage of it and work the angles on it. Yep. Um, I'm sure you're aware of the Inspector General report last year that came out on Medicare showing that there was a decent amount of fraud in the system. So I wonder what your thoughts are on that, especially as we think about possibly expanding it to making it uh, a benefit available to yet more people. Yeah, I think, you know, unfortunately, as uh, all benefit examples, categories sort of proliferate, whether it's hospitals or it's nursing homes or it's plans or it's even ACOs, you have some people who take advantage of the system. And what really, what we've focused on is giving the government the tools that they need in order to get the folks who are really not serious about providing that care out. Uh, so right now you're either a provider of hospice care or you're not a provider of hospice care. There's nothing in the middle. It's far too easy to become a provider and it's far too hard for you not to be a provider anymore. Uh, so actually, as we speak, we've been talking to, to Congress and to CMS and to the OIG about providing some intermediate sanctions, uh, about providing better um, oversight, and about providing better education uh, for consumers so that they can make an informed decision and, uh, and also for, for providers as well so that they can really up, up their game. Uh, so... I would say we're serious about making sure that anyone is uh, who's providing hospice care um, is serious about providing that care. It's not just doing it sort of as another category. There's something that's really special about providing end-of-life care. Again, m- most people only get it once, right? Just about everyone only gets it once, and we have to get it right. What would you say are the main benefits to patients and their families from the hospice benefit? You know, it's interesting. When, when people who have been... Uh, really abused by the system, who are shuttled in and out of the hospital or in and out of the nursing home or are really treated like someone who is to stay in the corner and uh, will get to you once we triage you, are introduced to a good hospice program, of which there are thousands, uh, that is finally listening to what they want, what their wishes are. More care, less care, this kind of care, that kind of care. When the, fi- when the family is finally getting care, in hospice, I didn't talk about this before, but it's not only the patient, it's also the family that's the unit of care, which is pretty, which is pretty amazing in, in the healthcare system. And when finally some of the non-medical needs that folks have, it could be music therapy, uh, it could be massage. I mean, these things sound hokey, but the rest of the healthcare system is sort of catching up to the idea that um, some of them work. When all of that comes together, people will often say, why didn't I know about this earlier? Why couldn't I get this earlier? Where is this in the rest of the healthcare system? And so when I talk about palliative care, it's kind of that. Can't we take some of that and give it to people earlier without having them give up all the curative care that they seek? So regarding the benefits to patient and families, that, that seems pretty obvious. Yeah. Uh, do you think Medicare um, is saving any money by having this hospice benefit, or is it just providing a good service to patients? No, I think studies have shown, uh, there was a famous Duke study, one from Mount Sinai, that uh, Medicare saves money when people choose hospice. And that is because uh, when you compare the amount of money that's paid to hospices, uh, especially the routine kind of days, there are different categories, uh, it's far less than what people would spend going in and out of the hospital or in and out of the nursing home or whatever whatever else they would be doing otherwise. Um, so yes, I think it's fairly well settled that, that hospice does save money. Does that pertain to a certain length of stay? You know, I would imagine that people who just go in for a couple of days might not make a big difference. People who stay very long 
it also might not be something that that improves costs. Right. So most people, the average the average length of stay um, or the median length of stay, if you're talking about a couple weeks to a couple months, that's when you're going to save money. A really long length of stay, three years. A really short length of stay, three days. Not so much. How do you work with providers to get that message out? How do we spread the word that? getting patients into hospice at the right time is the right thing to do? Well, part of it, I think, begins in, in medical school. I mean, it's often viewed as a, as a failure uh, by clinicians to have an individual sort of give up and, and choose hospice, whether you're a radiologist or an oncologist or a pulmonologist. Um, it shouldn't be viewed as a failure of yourself for someone to get uh, onto hospice. It's really a, a part of their, their journey, and there's a time when it's appropriate. Um, I think education is key. Uh, we have a part of our website called caringinfo.org, which is a consumer-facing part of the website that gives people a decision tree and sort of resources to help make an informed decision. And that's a resource both for consumers and also for clinicians that are not uh, hospice clinicians. So I think that that's part of it as well. The other part, you know, you see, I'll give you Maryland as an example. You have an all-payer demo in Maryland, uh, which has obviously uh, been going on for a couple of years now. It has never been a stated purpose of the all-payer demo in Maryland to do a better job of intersecting with the community-based hospices. But it should be, because if we're trying to keep people out of the hospital uh, or from having repeat admissions, readmissions, or if we're really attuned to what we're providing in the community, it's often the local hospice that's been doing that for the longest amount of time. I mean, we're coming on 40 years that some of these community providers have been providing person-centered interdisciplinary care, which is what everyone else is chasing. Um, so it's, it's a partnership, I think, that'll benefit everyone. Yeah, I'll put in a second to your recommendation on uh, Caring Info, that website. It's, it's really a very good one when we have practices who want some information to share with patients around what are advanced directives, what are end-of-life choices, we use some of the resources on that page. Excellent. Thank you. Accountable care organizations, you probably know, yeah. are trying to improve health care, bring down costs by helping patients stay healthy longer. Do you see ways that accountable care organizations have worked well with hospices? Do you think there are synergies that we should be trying to tap into? Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, and, and I think it begins, actually, before we're even talking about hospice. If I am a, a, an ACO, whether I'm a physician practice or I'm a hospital, whatever, whatever my genesis is, and I am interested, first of all, I have some flexibilities that don't exist in, in fee-for-service. And second of all, um, I'm, I'm really incentivized, um, I think, to uh, provide some non-medical supports and services and take a look at what's going on in the community. Same thing with Medicare Advantage plans. Before someone's eligible for hospice even, there's an organization in your community that, that has thousands of volunteers, that has social workers and chaplains and uh, provides all sorts of therapies, um, which is called a hospice. And so that's, that's a resource, I think, for a lot of ACOs, separate and apart from when the individual is eligible for hospice. And so be it a demo or, uh, or something else, I think that where, where I've seen it work best is way before hospice, even without a, an actual palliative care benefit we could put our arms around, our ACOs partnering with some of the community hospices and not pigeonholing them, not putting them in a box saying, you're hospice, I'll get you when we've got a couple days to go, but really doing a much better job of, of integrating the medical and the non-medical um, 
that's when it works best, I think. Accountable care organizations are still responsible for their patients' health and costs even when they enter hospice in the Medicare Shared Savings Program. Medicare Advantage plans are not. Once somebody uh, enters hospice from an MA plan, that organization is no longer responsible for the cost. Do you know how that came about? It seems like a very unusual arrangement. Yeah, I think part of it is because of the timing. You know, hospice came before Medicare Advantage. So in the beginning, you know, as Genesis, right, there was there was there was fee for service and all was theoretically good. And uh, hospice came to be in, in the early eighties. And so when MA came on in the in, really in the mid nineties, uh, the feeling I think was, well, we already have an all inclusive, fully integrated, capitated system for people at the end of life. It's called hospice. So keep them out. Um, more recently, Congress and CMS and MedPAC and others have sort of questioned whether hospice should be in. Uh, the devil's all in the details. And we want people to get care, and more care uh, sooner would, would be better. And mm. so, you know, if ACOs can actually are incentivized, which I think they are, to take a look at the individual as a whole person and take a look at their progression from seriously from chronically ill to seriously ill to nearing the end of life um, and then think about the appropriate resource to help with that that would be fantastic and same thing with medicare advantage Uh, we don't like i don't like the idea that people are chopped up into their component parts so now you're a home health patient now you're a palliative care patient if it existed now you're home health or now you're hospice that it makes no sense to real people uh they think about how can i get help yeah it's an unusual carve out it is indeed and the incentives are, you know, right now, oddly, the incentive for Medicare Advantage is for them to refer to hospice earlier because it comes off their books. I, I'm not into that gaming. The, the, the most important thing is who uh, is responsible for making sure that the individual gets the right care at the right time. And that is the system. And the individual should be part of that decision-making process. So have you seen any examples, whether contractual or just through loose partnerships of accountable care organizations and hospices? Uh, th- there, there have been. Um, I, I, look, even before ACOs, my, one of the early jobs that I had was the Visiting Nurse Service of New York. Uh, Visiting Nurse Service of New York, community-based, um, established a uh, really a, a precursor to an ACO, but was a, a, a group. Uh, and that group provided palliative care services to individuals pre-hospice. Um, and where I've seen this work best is in some of those groups that still exist, uh, the the NP and um, and physician led groups that are affiliated with hospices contracting with ACOs to provide you know a seamless progression uh, of care uh, and that exists throughout the country. I have to say though, I've been a little underwhelmed by the extent to which most ACOs have um, uh, made full use uh, of the resources available to them through hospice and that goes both ways. Um, I think it it really needs to be a partnership. Any thoughts on why that has been the case? You know, I think part of it is for the same reason as you see uh, a hospital with a strong palliative medicine or oncology program being reluctant to refer to hospice. You would think that New York City would have the highest hospice utilization in the country, and you would be wrong. It has amongst the lowest, um, given all of the uh, the, the, the intelligence uh, you know up there. 
because it's an it, it, it's often a competition uh, for lives uh, with um, with others. So you've got all these different things going on. You've got the ACOs, you've got Medicare Advantage plans, you've got hospice, and um, and I think where where it works best is actually where there's a real collaborative relationship between the ACO and the hospice. I'll give you an example. Partners in Boston um, has a uh, a group of hospices that they've pulled together. They had an RFP. They said, uh, you know, the top 15, 20 that respond to this RFP will be the ones we work with. Uh, this is the level of quality that we expect. And I've been really impressed by the work that they've done. Really smart folks, obviously smart, just like New York, smart, uh, although I'm a Yankees fan. Um, uh, but uh, I think where the ACO actually says, here's our, here's our floor, here's the network we're going to build. Um, we want to work with you on, on this basis. It, it seems to work the best. You mentioned uh, trying to change some of the regulations around uh, when people can enter hospice. Are there other policy things that you're working on with your organization? Yeah, I think there are, there are really three um, uh, legs of this three-legged stool. One is uh, concurrent care, the fact that you get, get hospice and, and uh, curative care, hospice and curative care at the same time. The other is uh, the length of hospice, that it should be tr triggered by uh, your needs, not by the time. Um, and the third is an actual palliative care benefit that you can wrap up your arms around. The, the last, which is a bit obscure, but I'll sort of mention it anyway, MedPAC is uh, cur currently considering a, a, a cut to the cap for hospice care. I didn't say anything about this before, but... The cap is this sort of limit that at the time that hospice was established, um, the Office of Management and Budget took a look at how much it would cost to provide care for that individual or those individuals in the status quo, compared it to hospice, and said individual hospices cannot spend more than X number of dollars. Let's say it's $20,000, uh, you know, period, for that individual for in the aggregate. Uh, MedPAC is considering a cut to that cap, which strikes me as odd. We're obviously fighting this cap. It's odd. There's no cap to how much uh, physician service you can get in the community. There's no cap to how much hospital care you can get if it's an emergency. There are day limits and things like that, but there's no cap. This is one of the only examples where there's an actual cap on the number, uh, on the amount of care that the entity can provide. Not the individual can get, but the entity can provide to that individual. But um, I'm not sure that that lack of cap is something we want to emulate in all spheres. There are, no. there are certainly some places where we, we should have more. Yeah, right. So, so, so let's impose a hospital cap. But, but, but I think that if we're talking about inexpensive as compared to what would be the alternative, uh, uh, interdisciplinary, person-centered care, it's odd to me that there's a cap on individuals being, being able to access that care. But if my great aunt Ruby wants to call 911 every week, which she does, uh, and end up in the ER, which she does, there's no limit on that. And so there, there are kind of perverse incentives here. So in pushing back, we're kind of making the point, look, some limits were placed on this benefit back when we weren't sure whether it was effective or not. We've studied this. It's effective, and it's actually cost-effective. Let's make it more available to more people earlier. And Ruby, if you're listening, we should get you into one of our Allidate ACOs, and you can call your provider, and they'll, they'll see you, so you don't have to go to the emergency department so often. That would be lovely, I'll tell you. So Great Aunt Ruby lives in, in, uh, in Virginia. I won't tell you where. Uh, and she works with an entity that, uh, that's fairly sophisticated. Uh, they have an urgent care clinic. Uh, she also has a pulmonologist. She has got late-stage COPD. 
the urgent care clinic closes at eight. Her pulmonologist is not on call. And so she gets nervous around midnight, right? So that the, the problem is if we're going to make alternatives available to 24-7 hospice care, uh, they've got to be available 24-7. What do you think about home-based palliative care? I like it. Uh, but again, it doesn't exist. It's a, it's a unicorn. So people uh, can obviously talk about home-based palliative care and talk about um, uh, it, uh, all sorts of integration and coordination and seamlessness. But palliative care right now, because there is no Medicare, community-based Medicare benefit, is more similar to care coordination and care navigation in too many settings. So oftentimes it's not particularly person-centered. It's not particularly interdisciplinary. Uh, so it's one of the reasons why we're arguing that it should be further defined and tightened. There's a national consensus project definition of community-based palliative care, which is the one I think we should uh, all adopt. Well, Ido Bannock, President and CEO of the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization, thank you so much for joining us. It's an honor. I'd love to have you on our podcast sometime.